Thank you, Father. Lord, we are so thankful today for gathering us, your people, in this place to worship and glorify and praise your holy name. And by the power of your Spirit's use of this assembly together to encourage and equip us through the proclamation of your word. Lord, we thank you for three miracles this morning that we studied from your scriptures last week. First of all, the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, took on flesh, came and was born of woman, and took on not only flesh, but all of the necessary suffering and the sin and the death and the justice that our sin deserved upon himself on Calvary. We thank you, Father that you moved heaven and earth and accomplished by your mighty hand this powerful work of redemption. Secondly, we thank you that you have miraculously opened eyes. Even this morning, Lord Jesus, in this room, we have those who testify to the fact that you and you alone have drawn our attention miraculously to recognize the Messiah. Our physical eyes have not seen him. The eye of faith has been opened by your Spirit's use of your word. And you have drawn our attention to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, just as you did with Anna and Simeon in the temple. Sovereign recognition granted to your people. And thirdly, we thank you for what the Messiah accomplished. The consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, ushering in the kingdom of God, which marches forth according to your sovereign plan. We thank you, Lord, that there has been peace made with, between a sinner and a holy God on the ground of Jesus Christ's own blood. Father, now as we turn to your holy word and we look more closely at the unfolding beautiful proclamation of these truths from the days of old all the way through into the New Testament to when in the fullness of time it was accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord, may our hearts burst forth with joy appreciation, and our minds blossom with intellectual understanding of the depth, the beauty, the glory, and power of your word revealed. We pray that all of this, Lord Jesus, would bring glory to your name. I also pray this morning that you would lift up the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, and the despairing, those who might wrestle with depression, because our text today, Lord, has special prescriptive power for those who labor under the heavy burdens of the human soul. We pray that you would grant grace for them to roll their burden and cares upon you through the proclamation of your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What an incredible opportunity. What a great privilege we have to open the scriptures together and to turn to these precious words. This morning the young people were studying two things, two adjectives that describe the holy word of God. They both begin with the word in and then they have a suffix, so infallible and inerrant. The Bible is infallible and inerrant. Of course, infallible means incapable of error. Inerrant means it contains no error. Uh, so you can have a document that is inerrant. That is not necessarily the Word of God. It contains no error. However, there is only one document in all of history that is infallible, and that is the Word of God itself. And in this case, because it is the Word of God, it is incapable of error. So now as we turn to the Holy Scriptures, we're reminded of its glorious uniqueness even in our study this morning. So let's turn there. Turn with me if, in your Scriptures to uh, Psalm 88 and let us consider this addition to the Psalter. The title of this morning's message is Regions Dark and Deep. Regions Dark and Deep. Psalm 88 
verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Poetic description of the dark night of the soul. Indeed, and a protracted time in the life of the psalmist as he writes. Almost an entire lifespan, as we read here, has been plagued by this feeling of trapped, overwhelmed, and suffering in regions dark and deep. A poetic way to describe the despair, the depression, the uh, discouragement that often floods the human condition as a result of our frailty, both in our mind, in our consciousness, and our ability to process things uh, through our thoughts and so forth, as well as our physical form and its susceptibility to disease and decay and death. The aim of this morning's message is to consider, therefore, the depth of suffering from which we are saved. And secondly, to consider the depth of suffering under which Christ endured. It's my thesis this morning that Psalm 88 gives us a picture of the depth of suffering from which we are saved. And it also gives us a picture of how this is possible in that it also describes the depth of suffering under which Christ endured. So would you stand with me this morning out of reverence for God's Word and let's read and let me read to you in your hearing today the Holy Word of God. Here we have Psalm 88 under the title, A Song, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a masculine of Heman, the Ezrahite. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Many consider Psalm 88 the darkest of all the laments in the Psalter. 
the last word of the song, in fact, is darkness itself. My companions have become darkness. Hemen the Ezraite writes, thus describing the loss of all common sources of joy in this veil of tears. Like Job, even Hemans, the author, even Hemans' closest friends can be counted on to desert him in his desperate hour of need. That phrase, in fact, is not precise. More like his friends can be counted on to desert, to desert him in his desperate life of affliction. Uh, we see in, and sorrow, we see in the context here that this time that he describes expands and extends much further than just an era or a season. We are often, uh, we use words to describe or terms to describe uh, a, a time of life that we're going through. This is a season of difficulty or trial, or I remember that time it was difficult, and I'm thankful that uh, there was a breakthrough. I'm thankful for new uh, hope on the horizon and so forth. But imagine a condition where that worst of times in your life is a protracted one, and as you assess, you look back across the lifespan, now presumably much older, from your youth has been a season of darkness, testing, discouragement, despair, trial. Such has been the case for the author of Psalm 88. He says, uh, in, or in Spurgeon's words, in his commentary on Psalm 88, he uh, described the author of Psalm 88 as someone who, quote, had done business on the great waters of soul trouble. A great way to describe the tone. This is certainly written by someone who has done business on the great waters of soul trouble. Do you know someone like that? Have you felt that way yourself? Psalm 88 is a condensed version of much of Job's experience. As such, it does not stand alone in in the Scriptures in its depth of despair expressed. There are other passages in Scripture that are not shy but are utterly candid in honestly laying out the heaviness of the human soul that can be the experience of those in God's bitter providences who are ordained to suffer so. In the context of its time, you know, when Psalm 88 was written, it may well have been a fitting hymn for a leper. I was moved by, this, by the illustrating power of leprosy to help us understand the context of Psalm 88. I was tempted to title my message, The Leper's Hymn. Think about leprosy, that degenerative disease that attacks your body slowly but surely and dramatically, and digits fall off in your skin uh, uh, it begins to uh, shed itself, and and you're slow. You watch yourself um, in bits and pieces and chunks die before your very eyes. And as you recall, it, not only in the law, but in uh, as just a necessary condition at the time, due to the medical constraints and so forth. Someone in this condition was a threat to others. If you contracted leprosy, and it was seen that this disease was going to overtake your body and your physical condition, then you were banished from the healthy. You had to live outside as an outcast in a leper colony, put away from, because not only would this disease corrupt the rest of the population if you were allowed to maintain your regular interchange, interaction, relationships with family, friends, and uh, society, and so forth, but not only that, but you were also ceremonially unclean. Uh, Your condition represented a spiritual uh, corruption as well, and so therefore you had to be put out of the camp. 
And under these conditions, we can imagine someone relating to Psalm 88, the idea of imminent death, rejection of society, overwhelming sorrow and suffering, horrifying distance from the apparent favor of God, and that would be worst of all, would overcome them, I'm sure, and as they thought through the despair of their situation. Think of it, uh, an overwhelming uh, sense of discouragement having been put outside the camp of God's favor. That would be the worst of the worst, would it not? To think that this disease, this condition of my soul and body that I deal with right now is proof positive. Is it not tangible proof that God has forgotten me and that that His wrath falls heavy upon me? And that would be the most despairing thought of all. Yet, like Job, there is nevertheless a resolve revealing the unsevered sinews of faith woven through this psalm in chorus-like repetition. Remember the picture of the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision. They were disconnected, bleached, dead. Yet as life is breathed into them, it's evident in the picture as sinews and muscle begin to connect, the connective tissue begins to reassemble the skeletons. And we hear this connective tissue, the sinew of faith, in the form of a heart cry of prayer repeated in, uh, in like Job, uh, in Psalm 88. This profound faith is evident from the first phrase, Psalm 88.1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And the more we read following this confession of Yahweh as His Savior, the more impressive His conviction, His faith appears. Because we know the great weight of difficulty as He uh, unfolds it through the psalm that he labors under and, and manifests faith in spite of it all. The Lord, his Savior, is his Savior in spite of all the sorrows the Lord has commissioned in his bitter providence. What is the value of Psalm 88? You know, uh, I was thinking this week of what we do with our favorite scriptures. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or even one that's a, that admits to difficulties but has a little more hope, apparently, than Psalm 88. He works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Sometimes we'll write these on an index card and place them on our mirror. Can you imagine anyone brushing their teeth in the morning and, and reading a verse like this and gaining just great encouragement from it? Uh, I'm like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who remember you, Uh, whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in regions dark and deep. Not exactly the kind of verse we imagine ourselves being encouraged by and then gleaning strength to go about our day. However, there is value in Psalm 88. Even uh, if we are not uh, apt to see it, that's our problem, not the Scripture's. The value of Psalm 88, may I suggest, is only magnified in our culture. In a culture such as ours, a lament like Psalm 88 is medicine for the modern soul, which often seeks to deal with sorrow and suffering by means of temporal escape. In other words, the reality of death, the reality of a failing body, we often deny through other means like drugs, amusement, meditation, extensive medical procedures, vacations, 
virtual diversions, uh, insurance policies, and any number of little tricks and, uh, and uh, uh, things to draw our attention away and uh, so delude ourselves. And for a culture corrupted by such delusions, Psalm 88 reminds us how insidious our last enemy truly is. Does anyone remember what our last enemy is? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the triumphal power of Jesus Christ, and as His kingdom marches forth, gains steam, and declares utter and total victory in the fullness of time over every last enemy, we find that the most insidious among them all in this passage is described as death itself. Death is a wicked, insidious (coughs) condition. It is something that we underestimate in its horror and and the terrifying reality of it. We we sooner not deal with that reality in our day-to-day life in this culture. But uh, recognizing the despair that is associated with the failings of a body destined for physical death is necessary for us to consider something else. And that is the powerfully victorious glory of our Messiah that is demonstrated in His resurrection, His ascension, and His promises of utter, complete, and total victory. And herein lies the ultimate hope for the author of Psalm 88. His repeated prayers, His oft-repeated cry, heart cry of salvation in the Lord is not vain, it is not futile, because there will be one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whose salvation program is ultimate and exhaustive and will include the resurrection of even our physical bodies in the future. Praise His name. This morning, let me uh, offer to you a structure for Psalm 88 under this heading, a four-part harmony of lament. If you will, uh, there is a four-part harmony that is evident in Psalm 88 in the ideas that are laid out. First of all, we have a portrait. We have a poetic description. Regions dark and deep is a great phrase and summary to describe it. We have a poetic description of the dark, heavy, weighty condition of a soul suffering under emotional, if not physical, pain. Secondly, we have a hypothesis. The author makes a case for greater glory. It's the way he postures his prayer. It's the way he makes his appeal for rescue. Thirdly, we have an appraisal. It's kind of an assessment of the conditions, particularly the conditions that are associated with the hidden face of God. And finally, we have throughout the psalm resolve. And this is evident in three places in Heman, the Ezraites, crying out in prayer. First of all, portrait, regions dark and deep. This uh, poetic and descriptive language of the depth of human emotional pain is stark. We begin to read of it in verse 3, when our author says, My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. What is Sheol? Sheol is that place of the dead, that mysterious next phase of our existence when we meet the end of our physical life. After our lungs take their last breath, our heart beats its last beat, there is a threshold, and then there is the mysterious beyond. Sheol could refer to hell, yes, but it's a broader term than that. It is, in fact, a place the world of uh, dis- 
uh, the world, if you will, of departed souls, the place of death, that invisible yet real next phase. Imagine there's a rope tied around your midsection, a rope from which you can't be loosed. And off in the distance, there is a winch, and that winch is slowly turning. And uh, when you're young, you can't even see the winch point. You feel like you have so much rope and so much slack that you seldom even notice uh, that there's limitations to where you can go. After all, why would I, you know, I, I got plenty of room and ambition to explore. Sometimes in life, however, a condition might come that threatens you and takes away more of your, uh, of your life than is typical of a good long life, and suddenly a few hundred feet of slack is cranked up very quickly. And over time, you notice that you're growing closer and closer to the fixed point of this winch. And this winch, come to find out, is attached beyond the edge of a precipice, a cliff. And as soon as that rope pulls you to the very edge, you have uh, only a tumbling into the abyss to look forward to. This is the picture of the imminence of the, un, the mysterious unknown that plagues the soul of the author of Psalm 88. He says, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, the place of the dead, of departed souls. And yet he is grasping for assurance and the confidence that this reality for him will not be one of continued despair, but is there hope, is there hope in Sheol? Verse 4. I am counted, he says, among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. From Sheol to pit, this uh, language of pit is common through Scripture to describe a place of entrapment, of darkness, of judgment, of despair, from which there is no escape without the assistance from above. This is the place of like a dungeon, dark, dank, and a place where you can, as you sit there, you think, about your own frailty, shortcomings, and the inevitability of death. A pit could also refer to a grave, a place where bodies are left to decay outside of their, and, and to separate, to quarantine the rest of the society from their corrupting influences as dirt is thrown over the body and it's disposed of in a pit, in a grave. I am a man who has no strength, verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, they are cut off from your hand. You have put them in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Sheol, pit, no strength, weak, dead, slain, grave, cut off from your hand. As good as dead, that is the situation. This portrait, these regions dark and deep that our author describes, he feels in his condition that he is as good as dead. More than this, he adds colors to his despairing portrait. He says in his many words that he's experienced overwhelming punishment. Verses 6 and 7, he goes on, You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. And then verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. The sea is a picture of the unmitigated chaos, the uncontrollable events that happen in the chaos of a fallen world where even the physical elements turn against the sailor in the moment of this horrific storm. And his pitiful attempts to ride it out by a small constructed boat 
are suddenly a mockery as the waves rise above him, collapse upon his vessel, and dash it to so many pieces. This is the fearful uh, situation that every sailor in the ancient world and many sailors today even face. The intractable forces of the uh, chaotic sea. Also, there's a picture of water judgment repeated in Scripture. Noah's flood, the preeminent example, where the entire world that once was was wiped out by the rising waters of God's judgment. Where at His will and command, the forces of nature itself served to extinguish those who were outside of His favor. And so our psalmist fears that these kind of situ- this kind of judgment will overwhelm him, that the, that the Lord's waves will be his undoing. Finally, he describes in this portrait of regions dark and deep, not only is he as good as dead, not, over, not only is he feel fully acquainted with overwhelming punishment, but there is finally this sense of claustrophobic despair. He says in verse 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. And we think of Job's situation where his friends literally add insult to injury in his scenario. When, what happens when you bear burdens so heavy that you are desperate for a friend, a companion, someone, a loyal a partner in this veil of tears who might stand alongside you and help shoulder the burden just a bit. And that horror of horrors, that friend that you once counted on and you hoped would be a bit of relief for you, adds insult to injury by saying, in Job's case, no doubt what you are experiencing is your fault. And now they add a little bit to your burden. And now the friend in the case of leprosy, those who were once those who once brought mutual joy, whose company was a pleasure for both parties and and lifted spirits now, your very presence represents death to them and those who were once your friends now shun you. Imagine appearing as a zombie to your closest associations, friends, and family where your interaction with them represents the touch of death. This would be discouraging in so many ways. It's hard to even calculate It's the horror of the soul. It's the claustrophobic despair that overwhelms those who not only deal with all of these other reasons, uh, all these other reasons to despair, but even their closest companions have shunned them. As we see this picture, we return to the aim of this morning's message. Consider the depth of sorrow from which we are saved. These Conditions that we've described, that the author has described for us in Psalm 88, are just a fraction of what we deserved in our sin. Imagine them magnified by untold exponential factors, uh, and and then uh, and then uh, issued to us forever in hell itself. And we have something of a picture of what our sin deserves. This is a picture of what we are saved from, the suffering from which we are saved. But more than this, also it is a picture of the suffering for which Christ endured. He, an innocent man, not deserving a single moment of the affliction that he suffered, even in him condescending, stooping low, taking on flesh, being born under such humble conditions, as we discussed last week, his first place of residence 
was a trough to feed animals. And he, the king of the universe, the author and finisher of all things in this material world, not to mention our faith, yet he was willing and he suffered for us. All of this that we read in Psalm 88 and more, his companions turned against him. He found himself in the depths of the pit, so to speak. The overwhelming flood of God's wrath rose over his head and suffocated him even unto death, the death of the cruel Roman pagan excommunication tool, the cross, which was his undoing indeed for our sin. These are regions dark and deep. Secondly, this morning, in the four-part harmony of lament, there's a hypothesis. So we've read a picture of what the author endures, and now he makes a case, a case for greater glory. Verses 10 through 12. Listen to these rhetorical questions, these hypothetical questions. Do you work wonders for the dead, he asks? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Say law. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Of course, the presumptive answer to all these questions is no. Our author is making a case for greater glory. This is an appeal to maximum, maximum conditions for featuring the majesty, the greatness, and the attributes of God. This is indeed a lesson in how to make your case in affliction. It's reminiscent of other cases uh, of intercession made in the past. Uh, we might turn to one in Exodus 32, Moses himself. But notice the logic. First of all, the question is something like this. Would not your glory be better served if I was an object of your salvation? And the author says, do you work wonders for the dead? In other words, if I die under these conditions, isn't that a missed opportunity, Lord? You might save me, you might intervene, you might restore me, pull me from the miry clay, set my feet upon solid places, you might defeat my enemies, you might preserve my life, you might heal my sickness, you might restore me into a place of blessing and apparent favor, and would this not bring praise to your name? Do you work wonders for the dead? Not only this, but he recognizes that there is a certain agency he says uh, that he might uh, serve as a, a, a one who can give praise to the Lord. He says, do, do the departed rise up to praise you? In other words, preserve my life that I might be an agent of your praise, that I might echo your word and your name forth. In other words, which is better? Would not your glory be better served if I was alive and well to give you praise? If I were alive and well to offer uh, a testimony of your name, we see that more as the, his uh, hypothesis continues, as his rhetorical questions unfold. This last category could be witnesses. He says, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? So which is a better witness to your kindness, to your care, to your power to intervene, to demonstrate your love to your people? Which is a better witness? a grave with a headstone on it, or a people who have been miraculously delivered from the forces that threaten them, which is a greater witness to your steadfast love. It says, is your faithfulness known in Abaddon? Is there anyone uh, hollering from beneath the earth 
in the cemetery in your local town, uh, God has been faithful to me, yet their life, of course, would testify to this while they lived. But isn't it greater still when we can hear it from their own mouth? Is your faithfulness declared in Abaddon, that is, the personified place of destruction, after a hurricane has come through? And Well, let's consider a biblical example. Think of Paul and Silas in jail and uh, in Philippi, correct? And so they're there, they're suffering. Uh, they have chains on their wrists, which to the you know, unknowing onlooker would represent the superior power of Rome. Yet they know better. They're singing praises to the God of creation, not only uh, the one who could deliver them from this prison, but the one who shows his power to do so uh, post-haste as an earthquake suddenly interrupts the night and their shackles are freed and the jail falls around them and they are able to witness to the uh, jailer. So one might ask, well, what is a greater testimony? Is your faithfulness declared in the place of destruction? What if that earthquake had just killed everybody in the jail? Would not have a greater witness been uh, known if Paul and Silas were spared? And then the jailer could say, wow, this is truly power indeed. What must I do to be saved? Finally, are your wonders known in the darkness? And is your righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? So again, the logic is something like this. Would not your glory be better served, uh, our, our author says, if people such as myself were specially equipped through experiencing your saving grace to testify to your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your wonders, your righteousness. The case for greater glory. Again, would not your glory be better served if we could testify, if people such as myself were specially equipped through experiencing your saving grace to testify to your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your wonders, and your righteousness. And of course, his argument is, if you deliver me from these conditions, I will be specially equipped to testify to these things. There's a similar idea I mentioned in the book of Exodus. Here, as the situation unfolds, the people of God have rebelled against the Lord. They've built a golden calf Moses is receiving the law of the Lord written by God's own finger. He descends the mountain only to find this horrific scene. The Lord is righteously indignant and He says to Moses, Exodus 32.9, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath might burn hot against them and I might consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Listen, verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and listen to this case for greater glory. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So Moses' case is similar. He's in, fact, he's in effect saying to the Lord, would not your glory be better served if your people were specially equipped to witness to your steadfast love, your faithfulness, uh, your righteousness, and your wonders if you deliver them all the way to the promised land? Not only this, but they will silence the mouth of the unbeliever in Egypt who might be tempted to say, who might be moved to say in mockery, and in, us, in scorn, that sure, God delivered them from our hand, but He was not powerful enough to deliver them 
to their promised dwelling in Canaan. And so God heard uh, the voice of Moses, his servant, and he did intervene. And in this picture of intercession, which I submit is a picture of the intercession to come, namely in Christ, the case for greater glory is indeed confirmed. Not only does the, is the Lord glorified in the case of the Exodus by delivering the people from the tyrannical hand of a government who has enslaved them, but His glory is featured more prominently still when He is seen as the God who has delivered them from the judgment their own sin deserves. Praise His holy name. So we see the second portion of the four-part harmony of lament. There's a portrait there's this hypothesis, this case for greater glory. Thirdly, and this somewhat parallels the portrait, there's an appraisal. I've labeled this section, Hidden Face Conditions. Why Hidden Face Conditions? Well, there's a central text in the Old Testament, all the Scripture, in fact. We've touched upon it in God's providence often lately, but because it is so important, it bears repeating. We find this text in uh, Numbers chapter 6. Moses was given by the Lord instructions for Aaron, who was the high priest of the people. It was a special prayer uh, that God revealed that Moses was to pray for, or Aaron was to pray over the people. We find this in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The beautiful words indeed. One might ask, you know, what are the conditions that demonstrate, that testify to the fact that the Lord has blessed us, He has kept us, His face is shining upon us, that is, the smile of God's favor is turned toward us in a fatherly, in a gracious way, that His countenance is lifted upon us, that is, the sweet companionship and communion and presence of the Lord is pleased to dwell with us as people. Well, this morning, the fact that God has brought us here, He's granted us grace to safely bring us with the health that is required to fellowship in the assembly. That indeed is powerful evidence of God's face shining upon us. And of course, more than this, our own testimony to salvation. I mentioned in this morning's prayer to introduce this message what a miracle it is that we even recognize the Messiah. Anna and Simeon in the temple stared upon the face of a little infant in their arms and recognized that the Lord had prepared salvation in this child before them. And this child would go on to defeat kings. It would go on to usher in the kingdom of God. It would go on to defeat sin. How did they know such a thing? Well, the Lord's favor was upon them. His face is lifted up. His countenance was upon them such that they were able to recognize the power of God in recognizing their Messiah. The Lord has done this for us. Well, one might ask, well, what does it look like when the Lord's face is hidden or at least partially hidden? Psalm 88 describes these conditions. O Lord, verse 14, Psalm 88, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved 
and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. We too often take for granted the countenance of the Lord, the fact that His face has shined upon us in our salvation and in the blessings that this new day, His mercies which are new this morning, have granted us. And for us, it is helpful to read Psalm 88, to be reminded of the despairing conditions of the regions dark and deep that our author describes when the face of the Lord is at least partially hidden from His people. A terrifying reality indeed. Notice that he recognizes in his affliction that God's purposes are often hidden. He asks that troubling question that so many of us ask when we suffer. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, the question why, especially in difficult times, has got to be the most popular question. How many times has that risen in your own mind? Why, Lord? Why me? Why do I have to suffer? Why do you uh, allow such a thing? Why is there such evil in the earth? Why is there such despairing conditions? And for many skeptics, unbelievers, self-professed atheists, God-haters today, because they don't feel they have a sufficient answer to the why question, they reject the claims of Scripture. It's a stumbling block for the unbeliever. However, the author of Psalm 88 knows that he, it's fine to ask the why question, but he has no right to demand an answer. Is God obligated to tell you why he does what he does? Think of Romans 9, who are you? Oh, clay to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? There are many people on who find themselves in despairing circumstances and they're in this trial and they basically draw a line in the sand. They make demands on God and they say, these are my requirements and, and, and these are the conditions that I impose upon you. Until I know why I'm going through this, I refuse to submit to your afflicting hand, to your bitter providences. Do we have any right to do so? Absolutely not. We can ask but we have no right to demand an answer. And if God withholds it, will we trust Him? Will we yet cry out to Him as the God of our salvation, though He does not always let us in on His purposes, though His purposes may remain hidden, though the answers to the why question may remain yet elusive? Now, with the benefit of hindsight, um, I often consider passages like Psalm 88 to have many purposes indeed. We, in other words, we can look at Psalm 88 and see purposes in the experience of its author that he himself probably could not even imagine. Sometimes in case of Job or here, Heman the Ezraite, I think of their experience as the maximal case. They suffered so much that it's likely more than what most human beings will have to endure in this life. And so their record in Scripture serves to demonstrate the scope of God's ability to sustain His servant under overwhelming, crushing burden, weight, and affliction. Think of Paul as well in the New Testament. There's few people that you can imagine suffering more for the sake of the gospel and yet doing so, so effectively <coughs> as he. Paul was something of a maximal case. And is his experience valuable? Oh, my word. I mean, we're 
thousands of years removed, we're reading these words, we're gleaning encouragement from them. We now, with a better understanding of Psalm 88, may prescribe it to a friend who's going through a difficult time indeed. And so there is great purpose in the afflictions of him and the Ezraite. Afflictions are purposes that he had to take by faith at the time he wrote this, having no idea how God would use his burdens for the benefit of his glory even thousands of years after he died. So we need to trust the Lord with these questions. Now, though God's purposes were hidden to Heman, the Ezraite, there were certain things that were obvious. It was obvious to him that God was sovereign and in control, even in, this, uh, even in his life of darkness and despair, regions dark and deep. Notice verse 16. He says, unequivocally, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and friend to shun me. This echoes what he has already stated, verse 6, 7, 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit. 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. This is uncomfortable language to the modern American Christian ear, may I submit. Most people do not want to face the idea that a sovereign God will allow and commission darkness of the soul in any sense for His children. You know, what's that famous question in theodicy? It's called in philosophy. It's like, how, if God is powerful and good, how can, can there be evil in the world? Again, this question, similar to the why question, is a stumbling block oftentimes for the unbeliever. And whole Christian philosophies have developed, have risen to try to answer that question. One of them, I think, is refuted by Psalm 88 itself, and it's called the free will defense of evil. I've heard this echoed many, many times in my own listening of, you know, Christian philosophers writing and thinking on the matter. Um, How could a good God and a a powerful God allow evil in the world? And the answer goes something like this, well, uh, God has granted to uh, human beings free will. It's necessary because the terms relationship that he desired we not be robots, so we have to be able to choose evil. And as a consequence, some people do wicked things, but, you know, it's worth the price to pay because, um, you know, a God, uh, in a granting to humans this ability, it's just a necessary consequence that it comes with the potential, the risk for evil. Well, what this answer does is it obscures the sovereignty of God and saying, you know, God in his... God would not prefer these conditions, of course, but uh, he is obligated to uh, tolerate them for the greater good of man's sovereignty, man's free will. So you see what we are sometimes tempted to do? To answer the why question by obscuring God's sovereignty. And that's exactly the opposite of the situation in Psalm 88. The author knows that, no, the why question is often obscure. But what's perfectly obvious is that God is in control. So let that be a lesson to us. Let us not, in seeking to answer difficult questions, diminish in any sense the authority, the power, the majesty, and and even in times of darkness and joy of our God. Ultimately speaking, there is no comfort in the notion that God sets aside His sovereignty in, uh, in His purposes to elevate man and thus... Uh, you know, subjects this world to the wickedness that we see. There is no ultimate comfort there. It might be something that patches 
a nagging wound with a cheap band-aid, but it only grows infection. The, the clarity of truth from the Scriptures is this, that God does work wonders through evil, even sin. Think of Joseph's situation. Was he someone unfamiliar with difficulty of his companions turning against him with the conditions of a pit? Uh, no, he was rejected by his brothers. He was lied about to his father. His clothing uh, that was a gift, a precious gift to him, was stolen. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery, only to be thrown into another pit of sorts in prison after he was falsely accused, betrayed by his, by his master's wife. And yet Joseph demonstrated that the sinews of faith and his spiritual man were were uh, intact, and he continued to cry out to the Lord despite the darkness of his situation, and in the end, God elevated him. Joseph could not have known when he was in the pit waiting to be sold to a you know, caravan from Egypt into slavery in the land, uh, some faraway foreign land. He could not have known that one day he would be second in command in that world empire and would be responsible through his wisdom and stewardship of preserving the seed of the Messiah and rescuing his entire family, having full command of the only storehouses of grain in this seven-year famine in the known world. Yet in the end, Joseph confesses that while God's purposes might be hidden in the meantime, they're clear in the end, and his sovereignty is obvious all the while. He says, you meant it for evil, but God used the sin of his brothers for good. This is the kind of encouragement um, that uh, Psalm 88 recognizes and can give, even in the thick of the trial. Despite his depression, the author of Psalm 88, and the duration and depth of the bitter providences of God, still the psalmist is loath to explore alternate avenues of salvation. One of the most striking features of Psalm 88 is neither through idolatry or vain philosophy does he turn anywhere else for cheap comfort. He will not beseech idols nor impostors in his desperation. This leads us to our final point this morning in the four-part harmony of lament. Some portrait hypothesis and appraisal of the hidden face conditions and finally a resolve. The shape and the structure of Psalm 88 centers around or hangs upon the uh, skeletal framework, if you will, of three confessions. And these are the our heart cry, the prayer, the uh, appeal that the author makes to the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 is the first. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Later, verse 9b, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you, the second heart cry. And thirdly, verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. These three resolved interludes structure the psalm, dividing it into the categories that we've already mentioned. And there's at least three ideas that are repeated in these phrases. First is the posture of prayer. It's the position of the one who cries out in his hour of need. 
It's this idea of cry, prayer, or the spreading out of the hands. He, just say, he says, verse 1, I cry out uh, day and night. He says, uh, incline your ear to my cry. He says, verse 9, I spread out my hands to you. He says, I cry to you again in verse 13. This is the posture of prayer. Psalm 88 is in, invaluable for every one of us. Because so long as the Lord tarries, every single person in this room will face the reality of death. Our body will fail us. We'll be brought closer to Sheol as it were. Our life will draw near, that is to say, to the world of departed souls. And we will find that in these moments is the chief testing of our faith. And what will be our posture? Will our hands be spread out as it were? in uh, throwing ourselves purely and wholly and completely and exclusively upon the mercy of God? Will we in our hour of greatest weakness, greatest need, and greatest at least physical despair cry out to the Lord as our sole source of consolation in the hour of need as the threshold of death approaches us as we winch closer and closer to the edge of the unknown? where the afterlife is reality. For those who find themselves in that position, Psalm 88 reminds us to turn nowhere else but to the Lord and to let our cry and our posture of prayer be one of desperate dependence on Him alone. Not only is this posture of prayer pictured in the resolve of our author, but also persistence. Notice he says in verse 1, I cry out day and night, that is persistently, consistently, in a perseverance that demonstrates the faith of his soul, he continues over and again to make his request known before the Lord. He says again, verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. And finally, verse 13, in the morning my prayer comes before you. So there's three references to the persistence of his resolve and his prayer. First of all, priority in verse 13, I do this in the morning. It's the first and most important thing in my day. Secondly, I do this day and night, all day long. This is the posture of my soul, utter dependence on Yahweh, my Savior. And finally, every day, if you do not answer me today, tomorrow may I do the same. Call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. So there is a persistence of this posture of prayer. It's not a trial and then a rejection uh, because, oh, I guess that didn't work. There's no pragmatism here. Indeed, there is persistence. Think of Anna in the temple. Last week, we covered her story. She was a widow. She was elderly. And she had many reasons, no doubt, in her biography to despair. Yet what did she do? Day and night, she was found fasting and praying in the temple. She was praying for, in the words of Simeon, the consolation of Israel. She was waiting for, in the account of her own story, the redemption of Jerusalem. Whereas, like Joseph of Arimathea later in the Gospel of Luke, he was looking for the kingdom of God. And she found it. She found it. She found it because the posture of her, of her heart, having been moved by the Holy Spirit, was one of receptivity such that her eyes were miraculously opened <laughs> excuse me, to the Messiah when He was revealed to her. And we too will find it upon death itself. When the doors of Sheol open to the believer, 
what he finds is that the power of Christ Jesus to save and to, per, and to preserve his promises for eternity are magnificent beyond compare, beyond imagination, and stretch into the glories of New Jerusalem forever and without end. So be persistent in the meantime. Finally, there's a personal aspect to the prayer life of him and the Ezraite. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation. He owns the uh, condition, or he owns his Lord and the salvation for himself. He recognizes that God is his personal, his individual hope and stay. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cried day and night to you. <coughs> Excuse me. This term Lord in all capital letters, of course, is the most high and hallowed and uh, name of God traditionally in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's three times repeated in each one of these heart cries. O Lord, God of my salvation, verse 1, I call to you, O Lord, verse 9, verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. Lord refers to the I am, the self-contained, needing no other, God of the covenant. He is the one who has the power and will, for His glory, fulfill all His promises to His people. If you ask yourself, what is contained in that term Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the four consonants placed together, this high and hallowed and power, theologically power-packed name for God, uh, it's providential that Psalm 89 follows Psalm 88. Think of Psalm 89 as you study it on your own time, perhaps this week, as packed into every reference to the term Yahweh. And it's, and it's to the Yahweh Lord that the author makes his resolve, is resolved to make his appeal in this posture of desperate dependence, in this persistent morning and night beseeching of his only source of salvation. So in closing this morning, let us turn once again to the aim of this morning's message. Psalm 88 allows us to consider the depth of suffering from which we are saved, but also the depth of suffering under which Christ endured. Our worship text this morning was the second portion of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It is prophetic not only of the triumph of the Messiah, which we heard this morning, but also of His suffering. Study it again on your own time, if you would, this week. And what you will find is the first portion of that psalm, verses approximately 1 through 21, refer to the sufferings of Christ, and in many ways they mirror the sufferings of Psalm 88, reminding us that Jesus Christ suffered that we might have victory. And then the second half describes that victory. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 22 through 31, the end of the chapter. All families of the earth will be redeemed. The glorious power of the Lord's intentions through the birth, death, the work, and the resurrection and ascension of His holy Messiah will come to fruition in time. And we, His people, will be the beneficiaries of this great majestic, history-altering event that will continue for time immemorial, demonstrating the power of our God. Consider the depth of suffering from which we are saved and consider the conditions that made this possible, the depth of suffering that Christ endured on our account. There is a commentary of Scripture called the Plain Commentary. I'd like to close with reflections on Psalm 88 from this work. Listen to this quote, the Lord Jesus 
emptied himself of glory, that he might be full of trouble. His soul, which was free of human sin, was full of human troubles. That we who are full of sin might be free from trouble. His life drew nigh to the terrors of the unseen world, that we might be its spoil, might not be its spoil and prey. In summary and beautiful language, the main point of this morning's message is echoed in that quote. Consider the depth of the suffering that Christ endured for us, which held out hope for Heman the Ezraite. And if you relate to him in any way this morning, holds out hope for you. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the majesty of your holy word, its depth and its uh, in incredible help for those who find themselves in every conceivable situation this side of glory. We have seen the testimony of your servant in spite of great, dark, and deep trial, crying out to you as his hope. Yet he, Lord Jesus, knew just a fraction of what the Messiah would be compared to the knowledge that we have before us in Scripture. May we be encouraged by his testimony that with greater resources still, we can stand in the day of darkness and trial. And finally, we worship and glorify your holy name because Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, bore our sin and the punishment and the wrath of God overwhelmed him that we might be free. His sacrifice paid for what we deserved. And we can trust, therefore, believers in this room today, that any trial that we may endure, Lord Jesus, in the meantime, before glory, that you have purposes to perfect within us, to shape us into your image, to glorify your name. And we, Lord Jesus, can reach out to you, cry out to you persistently night and day and in our hour of prayer. And because Christ has died for us, find hope and salvation for our eternal life in him. Thank you for these reassuring words. May they mark the path as we continue to walk as you grant grace in a manner worthy of the call. All for the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.